including movie highlights for June of 2022. This is the show where we shine a spotlight on our favorite new movies that stand out for diversity and identity. From Incluvi.com, I'm Kathy Yee. And I'm Hazel Bolivar. On today's episode, we will showcase a guest highlight by Incluvi writer Melanie Ojuang on the film Emergency. Then we'll cover three newly released comedy films. Those movies will be Father of the Bride, Good Luck to You, Leo Grand, and our featured highlight for the month, Fire Island. But before we get into those, we're going to take a quick look at some notable new releases in theaters. The biggest blockbuster of the year so far is Top Gun Maverick, a sequel to the 1986 film Top Gun, starring Tom Cruise, which recently flew to grossing over a billion dollars worldwide. It really cruised its way to that milestone. Truly. And though this isn't the type of film I typically gravitate towards, I personally really enjoyed it. I do doubt we'll be looking at it in 35 years with the same nostalgia as we see the original Top Gun, but if you enjoyed the original, this sequel is definitely worth the watch. In its own right as well, it is a very fun movie that takes viewers on a ride into the danger zone. I actually had fun with this high adrenaline movie. It really takes my breath away. And I'm glad they included a top female pilot in this sequel, with Lieutenant Natasha as Phoenix and the much more diverse team that helps with the Mission Impossible. I mean, their impossible mission. That is an inclusion of one more woman in the cast of pilots than in the original, so yay for progress. Also in theaters is Downton Abbey, A New Era. Continuing the British TV series and the 2019 movie, A New Era sets the stage for a silent motion picture being filmed at Downton creating much excitement for the family and housekeeping. British period dramas are not my cup of tea, so I sat this one out. Did you like the film overall? I did. The film is very British and very witty, with Mary and Grandma Crawley being the wittiest, as usual. They're delightfully eloquent even when they're insulting each other. Not much to see in terms of diversity, but if you're a fan of the Downton Abbey franchise, it's definitely enjoyable. I'll take your word for it. But moving on from what's new in theaters, let's get into our highlights for the month of June. First on our list of highlights is Emergency, with a special guest segment. The film is written by Katie Davila and directed by Carrie Williams. It focuses on a group of three young men of color at their university, Conley Sean and Carlos, played by Donald Watkins, RJ Clyer, and Sebastian Chacon, respectively. They have plans for an epic night of partying, completing the legendary tour, but their night is sidetracked when they come home to find an unknown drunk white girl lying unconscious in their home. Inclusive movie critic Melanie Ajwang saw the movie and we're happy to bring her onto the show. Hi, my name is Melanie Ajwang, and I am a movie critic at Incluvi. Thank you so much for joining us. To start out, we did want to hear overall, what did you think of the movie? How did it resonate with you? I tend to like movies that all take place in one night, 
I find the pacing of those stories to be really fascinating. So I was primed to like this movie, but at the same time, I'm kind of tired of witnessing traumatic events. So by the time I got to the end, I felt very differently about the way the story was taking place. I will say I did really enjoy the main friendship and the tension of trying to plan for post-grad life with somebody who you want to keep around but have drastically different plans from. And I liked that Kunle and Sean found a way to stay together after school in the end that kind of made up for what I thought was going to be a genuinely escapist film, kind of in the same vein of Nick and Nora's Infinite Playlist, and then turned a different direction, which is fine. It can do that. I just didn't enjoy it as much. I can see that. There's definitely a lot of anxiety and trauma. How do you feel the movie explores the topic of police violence versus the fear of it? I don't feel like the film really talked about police violence until the end when we see it happen and the lasting impact it has on Kunle, which was unfortunately realistic. But sometimes I watch stuff and I'm like, this is for people who don't know. This is for the Kunle's of the world. That being said, the fear of police is constant as Sean keeps emphasizing that three men of color with an unconscious white girl won't end well. But in a movie set in present day, it was really hard to buy that a college-aged Black kid who isn't self-hating would be like, no, that's not true. I feel like the film never really digs into why Kunle is less likely to fear the police than Sean. Kunle, by way of his class status, I'd guess, has a trust built up that Sean doesn't have, which I thought was a really interesting clash to explore. These friends have deeply different worldviews, but it's not really examined past one fight. Everything just culminates in Kunle's belief system being shattered through nearly losing his life, which is a constant, real fear a lot of people have. But police violence is widespread and forced onto specific communities, right? Sean and Kunle having different backgrounds could have been used to unpack why one of them fears the police and the other one doesn't until he's harmed. That would have been more interesting to me, but I also get that Emergency is kind of a film for people who don't know or don't believe that way too many police officers just see black skin as target practice. I would also be really interested to see a film that does more intentionally dive into that sort of difference between characters with such different backgrounds. Emergency isn't really focused on that, as you mentioned, but I did want to ask you how you felt about how the film explores the way presentation can impact identity, especially when looking at Sean and Kunle's relationship in the film. The differences in Kunle and Sean's personalities are immediately made apparent by how they present themselves. Sean basically has a vape surgically attached to his palm. Kunle is wearing steam-pressed khakis on a Friday. It's a setup for a familiar clash of characters. But, as I mentioned before, the friends have a major fight, and it wasn't about calling the police anymore, but about the validity of Kunle's blackness and Sean's reliance on deviance as a major personality trait. Yeah. Thank you so much, Melanie, for sharing your perspectives with us on the movie. The film is definitely not the escapist movie that one may expect. The film is also weirdly misleading with its marketing. The poster and some of the main images make it seem like the movie is about the unconscious white girl instead of Conley and Sean. It's as if the creators made this movie 
with such strong social commentary, and then the marketing team felt the need to trick the audience into watching it. I didn't notice that myself, but that is true and interesting to point out. Overall, though, I do think the film is worth checking out if you're interested in it. Emergency is currently available to be streamed on Amazon Prime Video. Next on our list is Father of the Bride. This straight-to-streaming HBO Max film is a reboot of the 1990s Father of the Bride. One, two, and three-ish of the same name starring Steve Martin, which are themselves a remake of a film from the 1950s with the same name. It's directed by Gary Alizraki and written by Matt Lopez, starring Andy Garcia as Billy, a Cuban immigrant to the United States who started from nothing and became a well-off architect, as he tells throughout the whole film. He is struggling to keep his marriage together with his wife Ingrid, played by Gloria Estefan. The iconic Gloria Estefan. He takes it upon himself to plan a wedding for his daughter Sophia in a very short period of time to a man he just learned about because after all, it's his duty as the father of the bride. The groom-to-be, Adan, among other problems as seen by Billy, is a sensitive man who does not really care for sports. As a Latin American myself, I can confirm that this is a major issue for a potential son-in-law to have. On a more serious note, the film portrays the generational differences between immigrant parents and their U.S.-born children in a very authentic way. I watched this movie with my wife who is Cuban-American, and we both related to the daughters in the film, who are so different from their parents. And my wife enjoyed the uniquely Cuban elements of this Miami-based film. I'm a new Miami resident, and it was fun seeing all the neighborhoods and landmarks in this movie. Like Coral Gables, Wynwood, Miami Beach, and even Domino Park, which I've driven by many times. I didn't know it was a landmark. There are a lot of specific cultural references throughout between the Cuban family of Sofia and the Mexican family of her fiancé, which is great to see because though a lot of Latin American people share certain cultural elements, there is a lot of particulars across experiences. The writer of the film, Matt Lopez, notes in an interview with Palabra that he wanted on one hand to celebrate the differences between the cultures and show people that within this larger umbrella of Latinos, there are various traditions and ethnicities and so on. But at the same time, there's this nice moment at the wedding reception where you see the commonality of the Latino experience in America. There's a modern element too. Benjamin Lee, reviewing the film for The Guardian, notes that Lopez's surprisingly deft script shows that it's the elder who needs to grow and learn, and that the younger man's progressivism is something that can help him out of the rut he's stuck in. This contrasts Top Gun Maverick's message, mentioned earlier, where they emphasize that the young should actually learn from the old. I personally really appreciated the film doing that, and I'm sure that Garcia brought a lot of himself to the role to make that element of growth shine. Because as he states in an interview with the New York Times, he has two of his daughters getting married within this next month alongside the release of this film. So in a way, he is, quote, the father of the bride, three times in a 30-day period. How timely for him. Speaking of daughters, I really love the character of Sophia and the ways that she went against tradition, especially after following the expected path up until law school. Like being the one to propose to the man 
and making different decisions for her law career than her father had expected. I also like Sophia's sister Cora, who ends up doing what she loved in designing the dresses for the wedding. She also seemed to have a gay relationship at the end, I think? I guess so? A very blink-and-you'll-miss-it bit of gay representation. I wish they could have given that plotline a little more time or not have it, because it really makes no difference. But for the film overall, as a piece for representation, I think that it very accurately portrays Latin American family life in a way that doesn't present Latinos as monolithic. The film also had a lot of success during its Father's Day weekend debut on HBO Max. Deadline reports that it is actually the biggest streaming-only release ever for HBO Max, having large viewership in both the US and Mexico. And I think it's deserved. It is overall a very enjoyable romantic comedy that breathes some modern life into a classic story. Given all of that, I would rate the film a 4 out of 5 for its movie score and a 5 out of 5 for its Incluvi score. I agree overall, and I think the film is a lot of fun to watch, and it's great for representation. I would personally rate it a 4.5 out of 5 for its movie score, and yeah, definitely a 5 out of 5 for its Incluvi score. Father of the Bride is currently available to be streamed on HBO Max. After a quick break, we'll move on to our last two highlights. Good luck to you, Leo Grant, and Fire Island. We all could use a little bit more time in our days, so why not save yourself a trip to the grocery store? With Instacart, you're able to shop from your favorite retailers and have all of the ingredients you need for dinner, your favorite movie night snacks, and much more delivered to you in as fast as two hours. Everything is carefully hand-selected by a personal shopper based on your preferences. And now with contactless delivery, your order will be safely left at your doorstep. To get free delivery on your first order over $35, follow the link in the show notes to let Instacart know we sent you and help support the show. Instacart, never step foot in a grocery store again. Next on our list of highlights is Good Luck to You, Leo Grand, a comedy drama written by Katie Brand and directed by Sophia Hyde. Do note that this film and our review of it does touch on some adult themes, so viewer discretion is advised. The film stars Emma Thompson as Nancy, a retired religious education teacher and recently widowed woman who hires a male sex worker named Leo Grand, played by Daryl McCormack. The film intimately depicts Nancy seeking pleasure for herself after the death of her husband, and the pair of actors deliver really moving performances throughout. The performances definitely struck me. To be honest, while I was watching the film, I was personally cringing during the first half of the movie. I guess in part because of how Nancy was simultaneously so inexperienced and methodical about sex treating it like setting up Ikea furniture instead of such a raw and intimate connection. I was also personally worried, given the title, that this film would maybe end up being a fantasy story of this exotic Leo Grand guy falling in love with a middle-aged client. But thankfully, the film doesn't go in that direction. It very honestly depicts his character as a sex worker, along with all the boundaries that sex workers have in their work. That is a very important part of what makes this film unique, I think. Emma Thompson notes in an interview with Yahoo Entertainment that the two characters have 
quote, a good time without any reservations, without qualifications. And yet it was not a romance. She says she loves that and thought that it was radical to show intimacy without romance. And I think that the intention to present intimacy without romance makes the film a very responsible and human depiction of a character who is a sex worker. The team who created the film took very special care in bringing in real sex workers as consultants. And Daryl McCormack notes in an interview with Cinema Blend that it was vitally important that we spoke to real sex workers. He goes on to say he was really inspired by their sense of self and the power and the boundaries that they've created to really add value in the work that they do. And that bringing all of those elements together within his character was truly important. I loved the way that McCormack portrayed the role. And the film overall presents the often contested subject of sex work in a way that is honest and shows the value that sex work has. Take for example a scene where Leo Grand walks Nancy through the many different ways he provides services for his clients. From just sitting with them to having sex with them and then leaving. It's always focused on allowing the clients to experience pleasure and connect with themselves. That is exactly the story that Nancy embarks on across her four sessions with Leo Grand. Learning how her experience with him can allow her to rethink the way in which she sees sex and pleasure. Beyond sex and pleasure is also rethinking the way in which Nancy sees her own body, which also ended up being a challenge for Emma Thompson in playing that role, because she does have a nude scene in the film. Nicole Sperling, writing for the New York Times, notes that the choice to disrobe was Thompson's, and though she made it with trepidation, Thompson says she believes the film would not have been the same without it. Still, the moment she had to stand stark naked in front of a mirror with a serene, accepting look on her face, as the scene called for, was the most difficult thing she's ever done. The scene itself was very different from most other nude scenes in media because it felt very neutral. It was not included for any erotic purpose and it doesn't come off male gazy, if you will. Instead, it reads as a moment of acceptance and non-judgment of one's body. The movie overall takes a non-judgmental tone and allows the characters to develop, be themselves, make mistakes, and even grow. Very artistic. Despite the cringiness at first, I was struck by the way this film is so thoughtful in its representation of a more mature woman and a male sex worker working together. I would rate the film overall a 4 out of 5 for its movie score and a 5 out of 5 for its Inclivy score. I agree with that. Overall, given the thoughtful writing, direction, and acting, as well as the film being a great piece of representation for women with Thompson's performance, Emma Cormack delicately depicting a multiracial sex worker, I would rate the film a 4.5 out of 5 for its movie score and a 5 out of 5 for its Incluvi score. Good luck to you, Leo Grand is currently available to be streamed on Hulu. Our featured highlight for the month of June is Fire Island, a romantic comedy written by and starring Joel Kim Booster and directed by Andrew Ahn. The film follows a group of gay friends going on their annual summer trip to Fire Island, a town in New York with rich LGBT history and some rich LGBT individuals. The crew is led by Noah, played by Booster, and Howie, played by Bo and Yang. Fire Island is a modern gay Asian retelling of Pride and Prejudice. I found it really fun seeing Noah play the Elizabeth Bennett character and Howie being like the sister character. I loved Will, a well-off stoic type man played by Conrad Vickamore, who played the Darcy sort of character. 
Beyond the adaptation element, the film addresses some anti-Asian racism with finesse amongst both straight and gay communities, using both realism and humor, like how Noah and Howie looked at each other and spat in the customer's drink after being rudely summoned with a hey Jackie Chan. Gross I know, but it's okay for a comedy. It's clear that a lot of care was taken in showing how being Asian intersects with being gay for the characters in the story. Andrew Ahn, the director, notes in an interview with Salon that, quote, the film is making an observation that there are certain things you can't perform our way out of, and one of those things is race. You can't perform a different race. As gay Asian Americans, this is something that we can't escape. And I think that's where we feel we don't have control. That's kind of a strange way to put it. I guess it means that you can't really be in the closet, so to speak, as Asian, and being out about it. Because being Asian should be a source of pride. Very true. And bringing it back to how this affects the filmmaking process, he explains that, quote, to a certain extent, these characters feel the helplessness of it. And that it was important for Ron to explore how one can find energy and power instead of letting society take it away from you. There's also a scene early on where the distasteful quote, no fast, no femmes, no Asians is spoken. This is actually something that has been known to be said in gay spaces in the past and even online today. When asked if this discrimination within the gay community has gotten any better with time, in an interview with Out Traveler, Booster explains that in a way, this discriminatory attitude has mostly just been hidden from view. And he believes we would all be better off if we would interrogate those preferences a little bit more and see where they're coming from. This is why having a film like Fire Island that has a diverse leading cast of gay men and starring gay Asian men is so important to equality, even within the gay community. Let's also not forget about Margaret Cho, who plays the gay friend group sort of lesbian mom. Speaking of, I do want to note that there was some criticism early on that the film didn't pass the Bechdel test, which is a strange take given that the film is explicitly focused on a largely gay male community. But Alison Bechdel herself came in and tweeted, Okay, I just added a corollary to the Bechdel test. Two men talking to each other about the female protagonist of an Alice Munro story in a screenplay structured on a Jane Austen novel equals pass. Hashtag Fire Island, hashtag Bechdel test. That's hilarious. Overall, I really enjoyed this movie. And I also love, as Melissa Gold notes in her article on Inclusive, that it is written, directed, and acted by LGBTQ plus actors. That this film is a great piece of representation and it officially passes the Bechdel test again. It gets a 5 out of 5 on the Inclusive scale and for its movie score, I'll give it a 4 out of 5. I completely agree with that. I would also score the movie a 5 out of 5 for its Inclusive score. And for its movie score, given that it's a sweet romantic comedy that hits all of the expected beats, I give it a solid 4.5 out of 5. Fire Island is currently available to be streamed on Hulu. That's our show for the month of June. Thanks so much for listening and be sure to join us next time for more Incluvi movie highlights. This episode was hosted and executive produced by me, Kathy Yee. 
and co-hosted, produced, and edited by Hazel Boulevard. You can visit Includi.com to see the Includi score for a movie and read reviews focused on diversity and identity in media. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter or support us on Patreon at Includi. That's I-N-C-L-U-V-I-E.